Lord's Day 15, the church confesses what the scripture teaches in the following manner. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes, thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you have an imaginary friend? Perhaps you've met atheists online or in real life who have mocked you for being a Christian. And atheists like to say that about Christians, those poor deluded people who need that imaginary friend in the sky to help them deal with life. And you know, the world is so consistent in its messaging that sometimes we as Christians can begin to live our lives in such a way that the truths of God's word and the truth about the very person and the acts of God are, for all intents and purposes, things that are imaginary. They don't have a lot to do with our daily life. They're just this, this little layer which we sprinkle over the top of our lives, a layer of religion. Now, the scripture tells us, and we confess, Hebrews chapter 11, for instance, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The Christian faith recognizes that many truths of which we are assured, of which we are convicted, truths that are certain and, and are real, are things that cannot yet be seen in their fullness. And there is blessing in having that kind of conviction and assurance. John, um, in John 20, the Lord Jesus says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Lord Jesus was talking about us. We haven't seen the Lord Jesus in the flesh yet. But we believe in him, and we know he is true and real. We know that for a fact. And the world says, 
you're fooling yourself. The world says religion is a crutch. The world says religion evolved. As we evolved from the animals and we started thinking about things and we were afraid of the thunder and the lightning, we invented gods to explain the natural phenomena and to deal with our fears of the unknown. So the whole religion thing, the whole God thing is a myth. It's a comfort. And thankfully, says the world, we're getting to the point where we're evolving past that and we don't need those religious myths anymore. And if you are less evolved than we are, they say to the church, then keep it to yourself. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to hear about your myths and your imaginary friend in the sky. Well, brother and sister, we'll hear that on the job site. We'll hear that in the community, here in social media. We'll hear that at the, uh, in the institutions of higher education. Don't fall for those lies. People tell you to keep quiet about your faith. They're the ones with the myths. And they're quite free to share their mythology, which has no basis in reality. Their worldview, which actively rejects reality, the reality of biology, the reality of the creational institutions of marriage and sex and family, and the very facts of history. To be an atheist, to be an unbeliever, takes a lot of faith Because you've got to hold up this whole house of cards which you've got to build in order to live in your mythology of unbelief. Christians live in the real world. And Christians believe the truth about the real reality of what this world is, where this world comes from, who made this world, and what it's all about, what it's for, where it comes from, what happened, and where it's going. And part of that belief, which we confess in the Apostles' Creed, it begins with belief about creation. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of of heaven and earth. Part of that belief that we have is the fact that we believe in Scripture as the historical record of God's mighty acts of redemption throughout the ages. These are cold, hard facts. And we confess as church that we know these facts. We accept these facts, that we live by these facts. That's faith. Faith isn't having a little story in your, in your head about some imaginary friend in the sky that helps you in tough times. But faith is believing in the facts of history and of the world that are revealed to us by God. It's not story, it's not mythology, it's the real reality. The truth about God, the truth about the world, the truth about the history of the human race, the truth about me, who I am before God. And if you read through the scriptures, you see that the scriptures allow no other approach. From the very beginning, Scripture presents itself as a record of history. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. This is the beginning of the story. This is a historical record. 
And as you go through the historical record, you see that it's a record of our family history as the human race, the record of the births and the deaths and the generations. And there are dates and there are uh, times and seasons that are recorded. You think of the flood, for instance. There are lots of flood stories and all kinds of ancient epics that you can read, and some of them you can tell that in a warped way, the biblical accounts were passed on in the generations, but totally lost their connection to the facts. But when you read the scriptural account, what do you read? Genesis 7, 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven's were opened. There's the year and the month and the day, the way we write dates, right? January 17, 2021. That's the way the flood is recorded in the scripture. Year, month, date. These are facts of history. If you read the ancient epics from other cultures that did not serve the true God, you don't see that kind of historical connectedness to reality. You think of the, the description of the building of the ark and how it was to be constructed. And if you, would, if you were to construct the ark today according to those uh, design plans and those numbers, you get a boat which has maximum optimum design for stability in rough seas. If you go to the Gilgamesh epic, which is a, an ancient flood story, and you follow the building description in that flood story, you get a cube, which would be very, very unpleasant to be in during a storm. It just wouldn't be seaworthy. The Bible is a book of historical record and facts. And, it, and then through the scriptures, we have fact upon fact upon fact until we get to the, the fact which is the greatest one of all, Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God came from eternity, from heaven, and he came into time and into space. He became God-made man in Jesus Christ. And the way the scripture records this is as historical fact. Luke 2 verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And it mentions who was the governor and what was the year. Luke 3 verse 1, when it starts speaking about John the Baptist's ministry, it spends two verses, the scripture, in defining the historical context of John the Baptist's ministry. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lasanius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." All of Scripture is a historical record. It's rooted in time and space and geography. And so when we confess our faith, we're confessing our faith in response to that 
historical record, which is the scripture. I believe in Jesus Christ, not some figment of my imagination, but a real man who is true God, who was born in a certain time and a certain place, who suffered under Pontius Pilate and who was crucified. All historical facts. Now, last week we looked at the the part of the creed which spoke spoke about conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the, the facts that our Savior is true God and that he is a true, real human being. And as that true, real human being, he was born as a real baby in a specific geographical location, in a specific time of history. And these are, and I'll say it again, I know I'm repeating myself, it's important. These are historical facts. And they are historical facts which change our life. And so we come to the very words of the creed. I believe in Jesus Christ. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered. What does it mean? Well, That all the time that he lived on earth, he was bearing a burden which we ought to bear. He suffered pain, sickness. He knew what hunger was and exhaustion, fatigue, temptation, betrayal, grief, standing at the tomb, the, the graveside of a loved one. Jesus knows the horror. And he tasted to the full what it is to be suffering the consequences of sin and the wrath of God upon sin. And that all comes to a climax, especially at the end of his life, when he, on the cross, in agony, bore the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. These are historical facts. Now, when we look at what our confession says here, that he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. And if you like theology, and if you, you're familiar with the Reformed confessions and the, the canons of Dort in particular, and the concept, the theological concept of limited atonement or definite atonement, then you may raise an eyebrow and say, well, why is the Catechism saying that Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race? I thought that Christ only died for the elect. So why does the Catechism speak like this? Well, Christ certainly did shed his blood to redeem the elect specifically and definitely. We'll see that in a moment that the Catechism uh, makes reference to that. But it's important for us to speak not theologically in the first place, but scripturally. And we ought to embrace what Scripture says, even if it sometimes makes us a little bit theologically uncomfortable. That's fine. Scripture first, and theology is the servant here. And the Scripture is very clear that there is, despite the fact that Christ died only for his elect, that's clear in Scripture, it's also clear that there is a cosmic or universal import to Christ's suffering. For God so loved the world, says the Scripture, that he sent his only 
beloved, uh, his only begotten son. What does Paul say to Timothy? That Christ is the Savior of all men. And then he continues, especially for those who believe. So there's this, there's this largeness, there's this, there's this universal import, and there is this specificity, there's this particular import as well in the work of our Savior on the cross. And there's a little bit of tension there, and that's fine. Reformed churches and Reformed theology has never shunned that, has never shied away from that. And you can read that in the Reformed confessions and works throughout the centuries. And the example is right here in our catechism. So when we're emphasizing that cosmic, that universal aspect or import of Christ's suffering, the emphasis is on the fact that there is the sin and the guilt of humanity. And that sin and that guilt is infinite before God. And it requires infinite and eternal payment. And that's what Christ paid. That's what he did. That's what he took care of. And the payment that the Lord Jesus had to make to redeem humanity, to restore unto God a a new humanity made of men, women, and children washed in the blood of the Lamb, the payment that he had to make to redeem the human race was the same payment that he would have to make if you doubled, tripled, or quadrupled, or multiplied by a million the time, times the, the, the number of the elect. It's the same payment that he would have had to make if he had come and suffered and died an hour after the fall. It's not as though we can count up all the sins and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a, uh, an accounting to be done. If Jesus had come to die an hour after the fall, just for Adam and Eve, he would have made the same payment. And that means that the payment made is big enough and sufficient enough that it never runs out. The church will never have to put a sign on the door like we do sometimes because of the public health restrictions. You gotta sign up and sorry, no more space. The church will never have to do that in eternal terms. Never will have to say to the sinner, sorry, just yesterday or just an hour ago, the last sinner that God has room for repented. And and there's no more grace. There's no more forgiveness. That day will come when the last elect person is, is converted and when the Lord Jesus returns. But the church, until his return, can always preach the wideness of God's mercy. That the work of Jesus is sufficient. There is no sinner too sinful. There is no sin and guilt too great. There is forgiveness to be declared and preached to every nation under heaven. And to every man, woman, and child. Because Christ paid the price. Because Jesus bore in body and soul what we cannot pay. Because we are bankrupt. We couldn't even pay the interest payments. We couldn't pay the judgment rendered against us because of our sins. We couldn't pay the bill. And all the sickness and the pains and the brokenness of this earthly life are just the court fees and the interest payments 
But the full payment that stands against the sinner is that our eternal life is forfeit, that our body and soul deserve eternal separation from God. And we'll never be finished paying that. We can't even begin to pay it because God is righteous and he is just and sin must be paid for. And we are bankrupt. And we can't. And so he did. He did. By his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice. He has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation. That's good news, brother and sister. That's good news that has to be declared to all the nations, to all sinners. And to all of St. Albert and to all of Alberta, all of Canada. We've got to declare as church of the living God, we've got to declare to other sinners that don't know it yet, that there is enough blood and there is enough forgiveness and you can come and you must come and you can be washed and forgiven and redeemed and restored. He's redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation, obtained for us, the grace of God. Look at the pronouns there. Because we talked about the wideness, the cosmic, the universal import in the first paragraph of this question and answer. Well, now the catechism focuses right in on what the canons talks about, the, the definite or the limited atonement. Look at the pronouns. By his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed what? Who? our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Who is that our? Who is that us? This is not some theological idea, some imaginary scheme to create illusion of comfort. This is a historical fact that Christ suffered for us. Christ died for you. God so loved the world that, sent, that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. That's where the, the particularity comes in. The definiteness comes in. It is for those who believe. This is the confession of the people of God. This is the confession of the believer. And so the catechism here echoes Scripture again, as it always does. As Scripture teaches the particularity of the atonement. Who is redeemed? For whom? The, 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 the death of our Lord Jesus and the blood that he shed on Calvary is sufficient for all. It is efficient for the elect. Because only those who have been chosen from all eternity come to believe and receive the gift of faith and are called and are justified and are sanctified and are glorified. And so it's a good thing to keep both of those aspects as we confess these historical truths. And so look at how God does this. He suffered, we confess, under Pontius Pilate as judge. God 
often surprises us, always surprises us. He, he, he often does things totally the opposite of what we expect. And so here is a breathtaking and a startling manner in which he redeems us because he takes everything and he turns everything upside down. A righteous God must judge sinners. But when Jesus comes to earth and when Jesus goes to the cross, that's turned around, that's turned on its head. A sinful judge is condemning God incarnate. And that, that's the way the Lord often works. He works in the most unexpected ways. And we read John chapter 18. And did you notice how many times Pilate, the civil authority before whom Jesus was tried, do you realize, did you notice how many times he declared Jesus innocent? Three times. That's important in the scripture. When something's repeated three times, it's the Holy Spirit's calling our attention to it. Three times our Savior was declared innocent, but he was condemned to death by the very same man who in his office as governor declared Jesus innocent. And so there's no question that Jesus did not die for any sin of his own, but that he died for you, child of God. That he went to the cross bearing the burden of God's wrath against your sin. And so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the church confesses. Do you confess that? Because the devil will come to you and he will say, you're a bad person. And I know what you did last night or last week or 30 years ago. And the devil will try to prod and to poke our conscience and he'll try to load us up with guilt and shame and he'll try to throw our sins in our faces so that we feel if we're asked is God angry with you and we feel well yes probably because I'm a sinner and I've displeased him in so many ways through my life and I do it every day and that's where the devil wants us not living in the joy of salvation, but, but, but oppressed by the guilt and the shame and the weight of our sins. And the gospel comes to us time and time and time again and says, don't fall for that. Because something happened in history. Because the Son of God became man and he suffered and he bled and he was judged though innocent and he went to the cross and he took the punishment and the judgment and the condemnation that your sins deserve. It's gone. It's paid for. It doesn't exist anymore. There is no judgment left. Your sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought, your sin was nailed to the cross. It is a symbol. The cross is a symbol of the curse of God. And Jesus took upon himself not just your condemnation, he took upon himself the curse which lay upon you and upon me. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Jesus suffered. 
Jesus was crucified. These are indubitable historical facts. Why do we believe them? Why do we embrace them? Why do we confess them Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Why do we delight in them? Why do we glorify God for these truths? Why do we recite them in the confession of our faith? Because these facts declare to us that we are free. We are free from guilt. We are free from condemnation. We are free from shame. We are free from judgment. We are free from the curse. And as we pilgrimage toward the celestial city, we still navigate a broken and groaning world, groaning with the hurt and brokenness of the fall. And we still have suffering. We still do get hurt. But these are not signs of God's anger. They're not signs of his judgment on you. They're not signs of condemnation. They are a heavenly father using suffering to teach us, to form us, to mold us for glory, to prepare us for glory. But believer, child of God, know this. No suffering in your life, no pain, no affliction, no brokenness, none of that is God's wrath upon you because there is none. It's gone. None of that is God's judgment or condemnation upon you because it can't be. It's gone. Jesus took it away. God is not angry with you. He can't be. Because for God to be angry with you, he would have to reverse history and uncrucify Christ. That's not going to work. It's done. It's dealt with. God does not condemn you. He can't. There's only one thing that God can do. Because Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. God can only love you. Let's turn for a moment to Romans chapter 8. Verse 31, and we'll end the sermon there. We'll read the last verses of Romans 8, 31. That's on page 944 in your pew Bible. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is a fact. Amen.